Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Circuits of Time. A home for the best in 80s movies. Grab your root beers and let's get rocking. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of our Circuits of Time podcast. I am your host, JD, and I'm here with my co-host, J-Dog. How are we, J-Dog? I'm absolutely fine, thank you, considering the situation. What about you, JD? Yeah, I mean, look, me and you have said that we want to use this episode to kind of give everyone a distraction from the damned virus. But I think it, it, we might, might just maybe say a quick few things about, um, you know, it, it's the reason why we haven't been able to put out any episodes of late. And I think people understand that, don't they? Of course, and we've just been trying to uh, surmount the technology and uh, we found a way. You know, life finds a way. What film's that it, uh, Well, it sounds very familiar, Jeff. <laughs> Basically, um, at the moment, we're recording this via Zoom and we are video calling, but I think we're just going to strip the audio from it. But you know what? We're not going to waffle anymore about the damn virus. We're going to get straight to it. J-Dog, episode five, what film are we discussing today? Uh, synonyms for a large, massive, enormous, it is only... Yeah, you, your head? <laughs> <laughs> that could have went anywhere, can it, that could have went anywhere. <laughs> J-Dog, J what are we discussing? It is the Tom Hanks film, Big. It is, and why we chose Big for this episode, J-Dog? Well, I think if we reflect back on the episodes that we've done, uh, they've been mainly light-hearted, even up to and including Robocop. And I just thought that if we're going to talk about 80s films, I mean, there are so many different subgenres, aren't they? This is one of, if not the best, uh, almost age swap or body swap type comedies that were around about the same time in the 80s. Yeah, I, I mean, th this year, was it 1988, if I'm right? Yes. There was several, wasn't there, body swap? Well, is, is Big a body swap film in, in, su in such it, a, you know? It's, it's not in the sense like a, um, uh, the, uh, Judge Reinhold, uh, vice versa one. It's not, it's not like that. But there is this idea, isn't it, that somebody is now in, inhabiting a body that they... A child is now in an adult's body. Yeah. I would say it's unique, but then I start to think about other films, uh, such as the recent one with Matthew Broderick. Not Matthew Broderick. Matthew, Friends, Matthew, Perry. Oh, yes. Zach Ephraim. Uh, 17 again. Yeah, and I actually thought it wasn't a bad flick. It's not too bad, that film. Yeah, There's also another one from around about the 80s, which is called 18 again. And that's a play on, I think, the fact that the main character was 81. And he was, he was now going back to being 18 years of age. And that was, that was also in the 80s. But there were, uh, there's a Freaky Friday. Uh, was that 60s or 70s, perhaps, though? I think that might have been 70s. I know it was a young Jodie Foster, wasn't it? And of course, you had the remake in the, uh, I think it might have been the early 2000s with Lindsay Lohan. But what is it that, it, it, why did Big flatten the opposition, I suppose? Because if there was a few body swap, we're going to call them body swap for the sake of arguing. What did Big have that these other films didn't, I suppose? I just think like so many of these films, again, coming back to Back to the Future, it's just got a real heart about it that you can watch as a child, you can watch it as an adult, and you can see it as an adult with a much more mature head on. And we can talk later about how I felt as a child watching it and how I felt as an adult watching it. 
but it's definitely got that uh, widespread appeal to everybody. And it's one that sticks with me and has stuck with me throughout most of my life. Saw it when I was quite young. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember the first time I saw it. It's obviously been etched into my mind all my life. So I must have seen it pretty early on. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you've just said. I mean, watching it as an adult is a whole new experience. But I think sometimes that's something I credit to a lot of 80s films. I don't know if it's something about that era, because we were both children in the 80s, and you know, you, you view films differently as a child. And there is something different about watching it back. And maybe it was just because it was the time we were grow, growing up, I don't know. But why don't you start off by telling us a few uh, brief facts about Big? Some brief facts. So we know Big was released in 1988. It was directed by Penny Marshall and it starred Tom Hanks as the main character, along with Elizabeth Perkins as the uh, lead love interest. And of course, John, oh, I can't remember his name. He's the, he's the dad from Home Alone. I believe it's John Lovitz. He's uh, all, he always pops up in some of these random movies. He's a great actor. John, not John Lovitz, he's in it. Kevin's dad from Home Alone. Anyway, I, think, but I, can, I can picture him. You know who he is. Of course, it is a body swap comedy, as, as we've mentioned. Other facts about it? Well, I just want to pick up on one of the facts that you did bring up, which was the director. Now, I only looked um, into this this week because I know we were going to be discussing big. I had no idea that it was directed by a woman. And I'm not one of these people that thinks that that's worth flagging in 2020. But I think it might be something that would have been unique maybe around the time. I'm not aware of a lot of the 80s films that I love of being directed by a woman. So I was a little surprised. I don't know about you. Did you know that it was directed by this lady? I think certainly by the 80s, there were plenty of female producers working behind the scenes and certainly plenty of females working on the actual films themselves. Unfortunately, a lot of them were probably in roles like uh, costume design and things like that. I'm afraid to say in 2020, the situation is probably very, very similar nowadays. You look at the credits, maybe this is where to study, but I'm sure somebody will probably do a dissertation. You take the credits from a film made in 2020 and the credits from a film made in 1980 and just compare them. And you'd probably see a similar sort of percentage makeup. Uh, now, I don't mean makeup, makeup. Uh, <laughs> you know, of the actual people who are actually making the film now. And certainly with directors, you know, you said, I don't know whether it's, you know, whether I should say this now, but simple fact of life, there are very few female directors out there. I think we need to move towards a situation where a woman makes a film, nobody even mentions it because it's just not even that much of an interesting fact. Maybe we will get there one day. I don't know. But then the other argument is, does it matter? If the film's good, the film's good. You know, we want equality, don't we? So simple as that. We do. And, and you know, uh, uh, you've almost made me feel bad for saying it now. But, um, <laughs> well, no, uh, it wasn't the intention. Listen, take nothing away from, listen, I, when I look at Big, number one, let's be honest, it was a great story. Simple story, but a great story. Uh, you had the power of Tom Hanks, who was just, I would almost be a, Tempted to say that it is my favourite Tom Hanks role, which is a hell of a claim when you think of some of the work he's done. But such is the range that you see from him. And obviously he's acting as a, as a child in, in an adult's body. Uh, but he was just almost flawless. I actually picked up on how well made it was. So it, it's a brilliantly directed and written film. Um, so I only brought it up because I was surprised. I, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, I think one of the other things that binds it all together is the music, which uh, is quite low-key and is very, very underplayed throughout the film. But the themes and things that come back, are, are, are they just 
they really suit suit the film and the the the, the, the scenes and the themes of the film. Turns out the person who did the music was Howard Shaw. Does that name ring a bell? It does, and I believe you're probably going to have a list of films that he's also composed for, so why don't you reel them off? Um, well, obviously the pair of us both like a certain trilogy made around about the years 2000. Is it, is it possibly Lord of the Rings, James? It is. It is Lord of the Rings, yeah. He made the music for the Lord of the Rings. Now, if you take the soundtrack from Big and compare it to that, I mean, it's not like Hans Zimmer. He's my favourite composer. And I know yours, of course, is John Williams. Hans Zimmer, you can take his career and you can chart the progress over time, the change from the, the kinds of uh, tunes he had in the 80s, right through the 90s to the more modern day, which is very avant-garde and, uh, you know, strange and unusual and different in that way. But someone like Howard Shaw, maybe I just haven't seen enough of his films, but I can't really see that link between Big and... Uh, the Lord of the Rings, but maybe uh, maybe there's a couple of missing links that I just haven't seen there, or heard, should I say, rather. But anyway, great composer, finds it all together nicely. Just goes to show what great work editors, uh, composers, everybody who works on a film. Costume, you know, the doodle that you made, the fantastic doodle for this film. As soon as I saw it, you see what Tom Hanks wearing. It's instantly recognisable. It's the green, the, the blue and the green and the, you know, what about, I mean, we've started talking about the, some brief facts around the film, but let's get into the story itself. Why don't you give us a, a brief synopsis of what this film's about? Movie synopsis. Brief synopsis of the film. A young boy makes a wish when he's at the carnival that he was big. Throwaway remark because of the fact that he couldn't go on a ride and in typical 80s fashion, the girl who he fancies just happens to be there at the time that that happens. Uh, next day, he wakes up and he is big. He's turned into a 30-year-old man. Of course, his mother can't <laughs> quite get her head around this fact and she thinks that he's a burglar or uh, he's up to some sort of no good. Thinks that her son's being kidnapped, so he runs away and escapes to New York where, because of his childishness, his childish outlook towards things, he becomes involved in a toy company and becomes quite well up and quite high up. And it's just about his trials and tribulations during that time. His path from immaturity through to some sort of maturity within the space of a few weeks, whilst he waits to find out where he can get this machine again to turn him back into a child. It's one of those stories that you think, uh, and you say, we've said this a lot about some 80s films, is that they could have only been made in the 80s. If you think of something like Big trying to be made today, where you have the benefits of mobile phones, the internet, the film all, all of a sudden becomes a lot smaller. The fact yeah, that we have no internet and no mobile phones <laughs> means we can, we can have all these extra layers and all these problems that people 25, 30 years ago struggled with. You're right there, JD. In the film, they have to go to the New York records office to find out where all of the carnivals are in the States. And after they filled in this long form and sent it off, the woman tells them that it's going to be at least six weeks until they find the information out. Now, of course, what would we do straight away? Just go on, go on Google and look for it. I mean, the Zoltar machine would probably be an app in this day and age, wouldn't it? But you hit on something interesting there when you said uh, it's the kind of film that could only be made in the 80s. And the thing that makes me think of this most is... In if, if the film was made now, the whole magic wouldn't be believed of the machine, right? Because it's quite a serious, it's a real-life film, it's a real-life film. The magic would have to be explained in some sort of rational, scientific way. In this film, it's not. That's the mystery of it, and that's the mystique of it. 
I could, when I watched that film recently, it took me right the way back to watching as a child. It's the things that are unexplained that make it so creepy in parts. When he goes to the machine and it's like, its eyes come on, lights up. The machine's not plugged in. That stuff isn't explained. It's a bit of mystery and a bit of suspension of disbelief in a film that is otherwise quite real life. You know, he becomes a vice president and it's about the 80s and people who are power mad and money mad like the other love interest in the story. And in fact, the love interest, when we first see her, she's very 1980s, power-dressed, go-getting. She's got no time for any soppy stuff. When she sees someone in the, in the office having a baby shower, she sort of tuts and shakes her head at the idea of it because she's just so straight down the line. But then that's another cliche of older, older films. If a woman's successful, then she has to somehow be a, a dislikable person, which I think is ridiculous. But anyway, you, just, um, you, were, you were saying before about um, whenever you see these um, films where the protagonist is, is always too short to get on the, uh, the ride and always seems to be the love interest there. But what made me laugh is that the love interest always happens to be just tall enough to get on. So does the bully. Or, you know, they, these things always come up, don't they? Yeah. What's the other one that came to mind? I think it was Problem Child 2. And the girl has wedges <laughs> on the bottom of her feet, something like that anyway. Um, yeah. So anyway, go Before on. you move on, JD, um, one thing that I picked up on only watching it now for the first time, probably in a long time, but I've seen it that many times over the years, is I didn't realise that Josh, the main character, Tom Hanks' character, he's got a dad. And I always thought that he only ever had his mum. When he goes to the, to the carnival, the fair, whatever you want to call it, his dad's there. And, you know, he embarrasses him by taking a photograph. But in the scenes after that, we only ever see his mum. And in the very last scene, when he does, spoiler alert, when he does return back home, we only ever hear his mum's side of things. That always struck me as strange. What about you, JD? Well, I actually haven't even thought about it until you brought it to my attention. I'm, I'm, I'm actually wondering now, what would be the point of it? Why, why? That, that sounds like a creative choice, don't you think? Things like that just make me think that was the actor in it for a scene. And then, uh, they, I don't know, they sacked him or something like that. just don't know. J-Dog, why don't you hit us with some uh, Did You Know uh, trivia, and I'll see if I can share some of my own. Did you know? Did you know, J-D, that the original choice, or certainly one of the original choices for this film, was none other than Mr. Robert De Niro? I did. In fact, I, I had heard of that, and it, it, it's almost hard to comprehend, isn't it? I mean, you think Robert De Niro, De Niro you think of the hardened gangster, and it, it's like, even now, it's like, I know we have the gift of hindsight, but even back in the 80s, I actually still can't envisage him in that role. Well, it's funny you mention that, JD, actually, because I only happened to watch a film quite recently that I'd never up until this point heard of before called Midnight Run. I don't know if you've ever seen it. it actually Is that the one? That, I think that's got a great soundtrack. If I remember rightly, the soundtrack's not too bad, but the main thing that jumps off the page for me with that, and it was a decent film, it's about Robert De Niro trying to get, he's a bail bondsman. He's trying to get a, a, a character back to the other side of the country, but he won't fly for, for, for some sort of reason. He's actually played by the dad from Beethoven, Charles Grodin, I think his name is. But it's a very, very much in the mold of mid 80s buddy cop films, such as Lethal Weapon. And mm -hmm. also the director had previously directed Beverly Hills Cop, so the music and the style and the light-hearted tone of it, but dealing with quite serious gangster people up to all sorts storyline comes through. It's it, again, we'll definitely have to delve into this genre 
in at some point. But the Buddy Cop film was very unique to the 80s. But this Midnight Run sees Robert De Niro in a slight comic role. And it was made in 1986, I think. So it would have been he'd finished work on that film and then would have been looking to work on Big, for example. So I guess he was trying to, I, I won't say, say achieve, because he didn't fully achieve it. But I guess he was trying to achieve a comic lighthearted role some 10, 15 years before he actually tried to achieve that. But the less said about Rocky and Bullwinkle, the better. <laughs> <laughs> that was a career ender of career enders. But anyway, that Rocky and Bullwinkle aside, um, I was also going to mention about the main uh, role, uh, which we obviously know went to Tom Hanks. And uh, I think everyone agrees you, you, you couldn't have got better, really. I mean, it's easy to say, but I, I genuinely feel that no one could have done a good a job as he could. But my research that I looked at before we had this episode, this discussion, was that the director, and I think it was the director, so apologies if I'm mistaken, but someone of um, importance at the top of the film really pushed to have John Travolta as the lead role. Studio execs at the time uh, completely rejected it on the basis that he was considered too poisonous. Now, I, I didn't know what that meant. I don't know if something happened around the late 80s that I'm just being completely ignorant to, but it, it was just completely no gold uh, there and then, and that was the end of that. But I'm pretty sure it was the director that was really pushing for John Travolta. So I don't know if you know anything that I don't about John Travolta in the late 80s. Yeah, John Travolta had successfully been pushed into the mainstream with Saturday Night Fever. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to capitalise on that. And throughout the 80s, he had a, a number of serious missteps. In fact, we're talking about this now, around about the mid to late 80s. Nobody touched them until 1992, 93, when Quentin Tarantino approached them. And from what I read in a book about Tarantino many years ago now, so let me try and remember the story, he actually went to this uh, flat apartment. He was just sat there with John Travolta, and he couldn't believe the fact that he's actually sat there with this once big movie star who's now, you know, nobody would, would give him a role, which sounds really strange because, of course, John Travolta then went on to be in Pulp Fiction as a result of that meeting, regained his career playing different kinds of roles. So one that comes to my mind is Face Off in 1997. Again, a tragic misstep, almost trying to sabotage his own career in the year 2000 with, can you name the film? <laughs> I, I actually can't. Go on. Oh, hang on. Oh, of course it was Battle, Battle was it? Battlefield, uh, not Battlestar Galactica, that's something completely Battlefield, different. Battlefield. Yeah. And then, of course, this guy now, uh, and certainly over the past 20 years at least, he's had his own airport almost in his own house. I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen a, a bird's eye view of, of where he lives. It's set up I like, haven't. It's set up like I an airport. He flies 747s and all sorts. I know he's into his planes and uh, it is sad because, I'm, uh, you know, back in the day he was, a, a, you know, you think of on the back of Greece and Saturday Night uh, Fever. The sky was the limit, but it just hasn't worked out. But enough about John Travolta. I want to talk to you about the piano. Uh, we, we can't not discuss this film without discussing the piano. And the reason why I say that is because one of the did you know that I stumbled upon was the fact that the original piano in the uh, New York City, is it, was it the FAO Schwartz toy store? It was. This original was only six and a half feet long and as a result could only play one octave. Now the song of choice, as you know, or well, I don't know if you know, do you remember the first song they played on the piano? Uh, heart and soul. Someone's been doing the research. 
But so basically, in light of that, they obviously needed to build a larger one. So they built a 16 foot long, three full octave piano. Am I saying octave correctly, by the way? I know you're the music guy out of the two. Octave or octave. Octave. Octave, either. Yeah, that'll do me. I think the, the anyone, potential listeners would understand. But they event, uh, ended up uh, eventually building a three-octave piano, wide enough, obviously, for that scene. Uh, and, of course, what a scene it was, Jada. Yeah, well, I've got a confession to make, JD. That was one of your questions for me later? No, I've actually played on that very piano in that very toy shop. What, you played Heart and Soul? I had a go, but I played on my piano. And then you were escorted out the store. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was actually in the FAO Schwartz building, which is just on the corner of Central Park, almost directly opposite the uh, Plaza Hotel or the Waldorf. Right. Area. I'm not sure. Anyway, the one in, the one in Home Alone too. It's right over the road from there. I went to New York in 2008, so uh, 20 years after the film was made. And the toy shop is very much as it as it was in the film. Unbelievable. If I would have went there as a child, it would have been incredible. I was in my 20s at the time, but anyway, I was like a child back then. But in this particular room, what they've got is the big piano, and you can go on there as long as you take your shoes off, you're allowed to play on it. So I do have a picture of me actually on the big piano. You'll have to dig that one out. Yeah, yeah, I've got I still, of course, I've got it somewhere. And it's a fantastic toy shop. It's the funny thing about that scene, and I think it is from that film, or I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, there's a really strange blooper where uh, they, they, they walk into the toy store, and as they walk in, a man walks out, and he's wearing his sunglasses, and he takes the sunglasses off as he walks out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of bloopers in that very scene where they're playing the piano, there's a guy in the background who picks the same child up and puts her on her shoulders at least three times, I counted. Wow, so <laughs> not not being there, watchful in the editing room, it looks like. <laughs> oh, these things happen. You know, Do you know that it's the kind of scene where nobody's focused on the, the background? It's the, <laughs> the foreground of that job. <laughs> not unless you watched it too many times to mention. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, but I was led. To, I've, I've read that Tom Hanks and the guy that, who was the boss of the toy company was it? Well, I can't remember his name in real life. Robert, hey, someone. It was. It was. It was Mac Mac Millen or Mac and Mac and Mac something. Anyway, uh, the the actor's name, which I always thought for many many years was Robert Logier. Is it's actually Robert Logier? Right. Well, the reason why I was wanting his name is because I was led to believe, or so I've read, that they had doubles dressed like them. Uh, so someone dressed like Tom Hanks, someone dressed like Robert Logier. Oh, don't tell um, me it wasn't them in the film. It was them. Uh-huh. You can breathe easy. You can breathe easy. But apparently Tom Hanks and Robert found out that they were planning on getting these doubles. And it motivated them to make sure that they'd done the entire scene without any aids or any doubles. And of course, as you know, they succeeded. So there's a little tip for you. That's fantastic. That's that is. I didn't know that, JD. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, one of the... Things that I found out was that um, obviously we all know how well Tom Hanks did in the film. And I'm pretty sure most of what we see is just the brains of Tom Hanks and his portrayal of a child. But uh, from what I read, um, what they had was the 12-year-old actor who played Josh. Not sure of his name and I must apologise. Was it David Moscow? Moscow? That rings a bell. I think it may have been him. So what happened is um, Penny Marshall, the director wanted young Josh to act out all the scenes that Tom Hanks would have acted out so that Tom Hanks could watch behind the camera 
and then go on set and do another take as him, which was crazy because obviously you think Tom Hanks, everything would have just been improvised. But no, apparently a lot of it was following on uh, a second take, uh, the original, of course, by young Josh, David Moscow. Ah. Um, and, and obviously Tom with Hanks was, uh, I think he did something similar for Forrest Gump where he, I think he spent time with the young Forrest and imitate the Southern accent to prepare for the part. Oh, well, that reminds me of the scene, of course, when the head teacher of the school comes out and he says something to him and then he starts making the noises that he was making with his, with his mother indoors. But anyway, we'll put that aside for one minute. But the, one of my uh, favourite scenes. But <laughs> well, it, it is such a, a subtle performance there. And I think he might have got an Oscar nomination at least for it for Best Supporting Actor at the time, 1989, because of, like you outlined there, just how well he plays the role and a scene that I think of in particular, well, there are many, but there's one, again, just with the subtle type of scene. Josh and his friends, or Josh and his friends, should I say, are just walking down the street in New York. And you can just see it in his body language, the way his head's uh, stooped, his shoulders are stooped. The way he walks, it is, he is walking like a child, but it's uncanny. It's so strange. You know, c contrast that to all of the technology that they've got nowadays, when you see Robert De Niro, we're trying to walk as a young man in The Irishman. And it just looks ridiculous, doesn't it? You know, it, it, it does. I'm one of, another one of those, the less said the better about the effects. It just goes to show with a bit of skill and a bit of dedication, then you can actually do something really special. And I think, you know, why shouldn't people put that dedication? You and I put dedication into our jobs and we do so many things that other people wouldn't even notice because of the, the skill at which we do our jobs. We're not getting paid millions and millions of pounds to do it. And for them, it's a one-off, isn't it? You know, if you're going to make a two-hour film, make it the best that you can. I just wish well, the, people who make films thought the same way. What I was going to say to you is the best thing you can say about Tom Hanks' role is that when you're watching it, you don't think you're watching an adult Tom Hanks. You genuinely believe you're watching a boy in the body of a man. Well, did you know, JD, that there was a... Coming back to days before the internet, did you know that there were lots of rumours around at the time that the film was out, that there was an alternative ending? I didn't know, so why don't you tell me a bit more about it? The alternative ending was suggested that the Elizabeth Perkins character actually made a wish on the Zoltar machine herself and turned herself back into a girl so she could be with Josh. Wow, so controversial again. Yeah, apparently it was a, a VHS deleted scene, but obviously nowadays Should with the world being much smaller, we know that. We know that that's not the case, and it hasn't. What I would say is, obviously, we're going to touch upon the relationship between uh, Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins' character later on, because it, it is an interesting one, and something that, again, might, we might not have seen in today's movie world. But um, sticking with our Did You Know themes, the Shimmy Shimmy Cocoa Pop rap, I, I'm hazarding a guess that you know all the words, or would I be right in thinking that? Uh, now you're testing me. I'm going to admit, JD, no, I don't know them. Do you want to have a go and see how far you get? Shimmy, shimmy, rock, shimmy, shimmy, roll. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to everyone out there. Um, apparently that was Tom Hanks' idea. This was nothing about the script or anything of that nature. It's I think it was, an it was an interview that he had on British television, and he said that this was something that his son had learned at summer camp. Uh, about, you know, Tom Hanks was talking about his dad, or it was either it was either Tom Hanks' son or Tom Hanks' dad, and it was a dad and lad kind of thing, whereas the son had landed at summer camp, and then Hanks had came up with the rap of the film and incorporated it into the script, and they just thought it was perfect, because it was just another nod to 
this is a, a boy with another mate and this is the kind of things they do. So, yeah, it was something that um, Tom brought in himself. Oh, that's quite interesting, that, JD. I will have to go away and learn it. Please do for the next episode. It's my homework. You know, you mentioned before about he got uh, an Oscar nomination for his performance. I believe, um, though I might be wrong. Yeah, no, no, you're spot on. I, I am aware of that. But he claimed at the time that while it was a surprise to be nominated, as of that point on, his goal would be to not win one, but two Oscars in his career. And as you know, well, he did win them and it was back to back. Can you remember what they were for? I know this is not Q&A part of the show, but whilst we're on it, do you remember what films he won the Oscars for? Philadelphia. Before and, I think it was. I think you're right. I didn't even know the answer myself, but I'm pretty sure Gump would have been one of them. Philadelphia sounds about right. Would that have been 93 and 94? It would have, yeah, because I believe Pulp Fiction was up for a number of Oscars and it was beaten or pipped to the post by uh, Forrest Gump. Wow. Well, there you have it. Anything else you, you want to share with us before we move on to our next segment? I think we should move on, JD. Sounds good to me. Q&A. So, J-Dog, I'm going to hit you with some questions. I don't know if you want to hear mine three questions out and then ask me three of your own, or we'll do back and forth, one and one, what do you think? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, nice and easy one. What was the name of the machine? Zoltar. I thought we'd start easy, you know. They'll, they'll get progressively more difficult, I hope. Okay, we did touch on this before, JD, but can you name the actual toy company in the film? Was it? We did touch upon it, and I've already forgotten. It begins with an M, because I think it's named after the the boss. Was it Milligan or Milliken? I can't remember. Something like that, anyway. Macmillan. Macmillan, I'm going to get. I'm going to give myself half a point out. You're okay with that? Okay. Okay, I said to you uh, a bit earlier about this, one of the songs played on the piano. And I, I know, uh, you know what? It's another easy one, but let's just get on. Do you remember the name of the second song? Chopsticks. Spot on, J-Dog. My question to you, JD, is when Josh goes to the formal dinner, why does everybody laugh at him? Is this something to do with the corn on the cob scene? No, that's something that happens, uh, but it's not because of the corn on the cob. Oh, I'm trying to picture it. He's caught, oh, it's his tux. It's his tux. What is it about his tux, JD? It's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> it is like something from a 1980s prom photo. It is. You've <laughs> wore something similar on a nice house, if I recall. <laughs> In fact, I think that's how you met your future wife, so that's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Um, my, last question for you, my last question for you, J-Dog, um, again, something we've already touched upon. We said at the time that there was some other body swap films, and I think you named two of them, but I think there was three at the time. Do you know the names of the other body swap films in and around the time of Big? Okay, so we mentioned Vice Versa, didn't we? Vice versa. That bit, that was the bit after one years, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. And I mentioned 18 again. 14 going on 30 or something like that. I think that might have been like a 90s film, I'm not sure. Do you know what? I asked the question only knowing two of the three, so forgive me. I know there's a third, I just thought you might know it. So forgive me. All right. My question for you, JD, is when the hard-nosed businessman, the, the love rival, the love interest played by the dad from Home Alone, uh, plays a sport against Tom Hanks' character. What sport is it that they actually play? 
it's squash. I remember oh, that scene very well. You've got it. Yeah. I, I feel guilty constantly referring to referring to the guy off Home Alone or Kevin's dad. <laughs> <laughs> you I know, think I five seconds of research. But I think that's more of a, of a, of a signal of how how familiar these people and their faces stick in our mind. And uh, I don't think you maybe get that so much nowadays. What with, you know, if you want to search for a certain actor, you just put their name in on whatever streaming service you're using or whatever films will come up that they're in. Back then, you know, you only rarely saw them if, if they were in a, 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 pardon the pun, if they were in a big film or, you know, a film that was well known. And then those, those people and those faces, you know, they stuck with us. One of those things that stuck in my mind, coming back to the scene of the party, the formal dinner, is the pink. There's a real pink glow to the scene. And that, that, that colour is, when I think of that film, Big, that's one of the scenes, the colour of that scene, just stuck in my head. Because the, like the characters, like the actors, it's etched in our minds. What do you think, JD? Well, it, I'm glad you mentioned scenes because of, that, that leads us nicely into our next segment, which is, of course, our favourite scene. Is that perchance your favourite scene, the thing you've just been discussing? We'll call it the pink scene. <laughs> it's it's not necessarily one of my favourite scenes, but definitely an important scene in the film, in that this is the point when Elizabeth Perkins' character truly realises that, that she's, she's got these feelings for this man. She knows, she knows he's a man at this point in time, or she thinks he's a man. But the idea is, his aspect is really naive and childish. But her aspect is like, wow, look, he's so strong and he doesn't care about what other people think about him. I mean, he doesn't even know the laughing at him. He just thinks he's in part of, in the, on the joke a little bit. But actually, he's showing qualities that you'd associate with masculinity, but in actual fact, it's, it's more naivety, isn't it? Uh, and then that's the point as well where that she's quite hard-nosed um, and really tough. But in that scene, she changes. She, she, she goes to the bar, to the boss of the company, and she starts talking about product lines. And, you know, the boss of the company is like, have a drink it's a party relax by the end of that scene she has relaxed she's had a good time uh, in the limo with uh, josh you know they're hanging out the top and uh, there's a billy idol song in the background uh, hot in the city big in the city whatever it's called and they're just having a laugh they're having a good time you know and she starts to change then as a character she becomes he he, he matures no he doesn't mature but she becomes more immature and more on his level. She, she, she gravitates to his immaturity. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you In know, when you meet someone, don't you? You, you change a bit and you, you, you're very playful and, you know, relax. You start to relax in the presence and just do nice, fun things that, you know, you wouldn't normally do. And it's nice, isn't it? But of course, well, well, later let's, on... Let's, the use that let's use that opportunity quickly. I know, obviously, we're talking about some of our favourite scenes, but you just touched upon about this is the point in the film at which the love interest, the love if you like. Yeah. <laughs> this is the point when the hardened corporate woman in the office starts to soften up around. What, what, what's the film's, some of the, the messages and the themes, what, what's it trying to tell us with that? Why is this immaturity and naivety the key to success of your life? What, what's the film telling us or asking us? Well, I think that the, the films, the, the theme of the film is that sometimes, you know, uh, we all need a little bit of immaturity and, uh, and also the idea that uh, over time, as we grow up, life becomes so much more complex. You know, these people are running a toy company, which on the face of it is toys, it's fun, but behind that thin facade of the toys 
and the the the, the pleasant stuff of it is actually a really hard-nosed business model and people who are in that world of corporate and making money and the only thing that matters is the next uh, book you know it was made about the same time as wall street but also one of the things that had happened in the 1980s was there was a lot of regulation in advertising in the united states so if if a company wanted to put a toy advert on or advertise something towards children, there were massive amounts of red tape in the way. One of the things that Reagan did was he pulled, you know, the political ideology was pulling back the state, rolling back all of those rules and regulations. And one of the big things that he did was deregulate advertising. So straight away it was open season and it was just adverts, adverts, adverts. The adverts became the toys. So Transformers, uh, you know, there were, there were so many different things. In America, many of them carried over here, but they were just thrown out to children through adverts. In fact, the, the I say baddie, but the, the rival love interest mentions this very thing. He says, look, here's what you've got to do. You've got to uh, throw the, the advertisements out, the commercials out to the kids first thing in the morning so that by the time the parents wake up, the kids are coming at them screaming, saying, I want this, I want this, I want that. But that's the way it was in those times, you know, you know like the A-Team serial and, Teenage Mutant Ninja cereal and all that. But kids were getting fed this diet almost of not just sugary foods, but advertising, advertising, toys, buy, 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 the next one, the next one. I'm sure you can think of a couple of different toy lines that <laughs> certainly one film in mind. What do you reckon, JD? You know, you, you just touched upon the, the, the corporate side of where um, Josh, the character, ends up. Before we go on, I'm going to mention the garbage pail kids. The garbage pail. Oh, oh, we'll touch briefly on the garbage. Just a small, <laughs> just a small segue for our listeners. Listen, I watched the garbage pail kids when I was about four or five years old, so I wasn't judging the film on its quality and in, 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 as we would now, um, its production value and all those things. It's more of a nostalgic thing. I, I, I'm not saying I defend the film because it's absolutely appalling, uh, but it does hold a special place. Now I know you sometimes say the same about Howard the Duck. Um, but I, oh, you said you, you haven't watched it, but to this day, I will I defend that film. I have watched it. Oh, and what did you think? I thought it was awful. And just like that, all 16 of our listeners shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, the, what you said before was very important because you were talking about on the outside, it's a toy company. And then you've got this guy, this, this kid in a man's body who comes in and you look at that scene when they're all sitting in that business meeting. And everyone's talking facts, figures, market, marketing and charts. And he's sitting there playing with the toy. They're all dressed in this drab grey. He's sitting in a colourful shirt. So there's, there's, there's such a striking... But the boss, the actual guy, just repeat his name for me again. Uh, the actor's name's Robert Lowe. No, no, the actual character. Oh, um, Mr. Macmillan. So Mr. Macmillan, he's obviously the chair of this meeting. He's transfixed with what Josh is doing. He, and all he's doing is messing with the toy. So there's, there's, you're constantly getting hit with these messages about naivety and how obviously that can be, a, that can be the formula for success in, in yeah. so many ways. Yeah, but also at the same time, you know, not to go too heavy on that. By the end of the film, we see that transformation in Josh and he becomes very much corporate like those other people in the suits, doesn't he? And he's got no time for his mate or anything like that. He's saying, oh, this is important. He's totally lost whatever it was, that, that naivety and that spirit. And I, I just wish that could have been explored a little bit more. It, it, it sort of comes in towards the end and then it, it swiftly moves away from that. But when he does have the opportunity to come up with a product, 
they come up with a, a comic book that's electronic or something like that. And his idea, when he pitches it in this corporate environment, isn't that good. And it's because he's thinking of it from a child's perspective. He's not thinking of it from the business perspective. So even though that original spark probably sparked the owner of the company to begin with, over time, there's, a, there's the fact, facts of life that we have to deal with. So I'm glad that it just gets that in there. So I know we, we, we've kind of gone off on so many tangents there, but you know, it's the, this is what a podcast is all about. We need to discuss these things, but we were obviously going to talk about our favourite scenes, and I, I thought I'd just present mine to you. Favourite scene. And it's, it's a small part of the film, but it's one which I find myself laughing at. There's almost a, you can relate to it in so many ways uh, without wanting to cause offence, perhaps I'm going to. But it's the scene when he starts working uh, with John Lovitz in the office, who doesn't say or have many lines in the film, but what he does say is probably the funniest lines in the whole movie. You start off, obviously, Josh sits down. Uh, he's a kid. All of a sudden, he's in this world, an office, and he's sat in front of a computer. And it, it's more just, it's, it's just like a data entry clock. And here he is. He's been given the paperwork. He starts entering them. And John Lovitz comes in, and I can't remember the exact line, but it's something along the lines of, hey, you're trying to get us all fired? Like slow it down, slow down, and it, it's brilliant because you've been in the workplace, Chris, and you can you know every workplace has got these kind of people. They just kind of take the mic, and it's brilliant. You you just got to laugh, and it's a different yeah. scene, but it's the same guy. He's obviously pointing out that there's a girl in the in the department who's uh, to, to I'll, I'll use the words or the phrase easy. Can't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of you buy her a drink and she'll have her legs around yeah so fast or something like that. To which Josh replies. I'll be sure to stay away from here. And I just, it was brilliant. And it was just summed the film up perfectly because you've got this moment of two uh, macho colleagues, well, I say macho, two men, grown men in, a, in an office, womanizing basically. But obviously he's unbeknownst to the, uh, John Lovis that he's obviously talking to a young kid. Whereas we're all obviously aware of that. It, it's just brilliantly scripted, isn't it? That's great, yeah. And just to add one more thing to that character or his, his scenes before I give him one of my favourites, there's a part where Josh phones his mum to say in a roundabout way, we've got your son and he's going to be fine. And then she says, you tell me something, or he says, you tell me something that only you'd know or only you'd know. And she says, what song did I used to sing to him? And he starts singing it and you just see John Lovett's character his head pops up from behind the divide behind his shoulder. <laughs> but uh, one, one of my favourite scenes, it's, it's, it's not so much a fun scene, but there are very few films that actually bring out emotion in me, right? And one of them is Schindler's List at the end when uh, you know, Schindler's saying, the, what if I sold my ring or I could give this away, that would save so many lives. That, that just gets me every time, especially after that film, three hours of that film. But there's a scene in this that's always got me from when I was a child, and it's when, when he first goes to the hotel in Times Square. And obviously in that time, until the 90s, New York and Times Square in particular was a very grubby, seedy area. But back then... Apologies to, apologies to any listeners who are living <laughs> in, and around, in and around New York City. But back then, it was definitely dangerous almost for your health to be around there late at night to be goes to this uh, filthy hotel which apparently was the name of the actual hotel called St. James or something and it's still going today so the film didn't exactly damage the reputation too much 
and it's rotten, it's filthy, and he goes into this horrible room with all damp and mold, the bed's not made. It's just disgusting. And then his mate goes because he has to go home. And just in that moment, you just feel that sense of loneliness and isolation. And you think, oh, what, what would I do if I was 12 years of age in this situation? And I can remember watching the film probably when I was that age, or if not younger, certainly, you know, uh, I can certainly remember a time in my life where Josh's character was definitely older than I was. And I just thought, just felt that fear uh, and, uh, and being on your own. And there's someone in the corridor uh, speaking on a phone, shouting into it. And he's just, he's whacking the phone. And in that moment, you just see Tom Hanks just cower into himself and he starts crying. And it still gets me now, I watched it recently, and it, and it still gets me now when I just see him in that position, curled up like a baby almost, just crying his eyes out. You know, he's locked the door, something against it, and he just puts the covers over him. It's, it's a horrible scene, but it's, it's so heartrending, you know? Obviously, from there, it's much more happier, the film overall. And then we get to another one. I'll just say it briefly. Another one of my favourite scenes, it's the, it's the fantasy scene. What would you do if you had loads of money and you were a kid? You'd buy things like a Pepsi machine, a big trampoline, you know, all fun stuff, wouldn't you? An inflatable T-Rex. An inflatable T-Rex. Well, listen, we've kind of... We always kind of touch upon the characters, but I think we've already focused a lot about, you know, the hardened uh, work woman, the boss, the love interest and all the rest of it. So I'll just, let's start focusing on the film's legacy and, 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 you know, we've already discussed the message, but what's its legacy today? Movie legacy. We know it's a a beloved film. It's like, I know, you know, uh, I've got younger members of the family that watch it and love it. Uh, Much like a lot of the 80s films, they're all family oriented. Everyone can sit and enjoy them. And although it's of its time, it's what is the message still relevant today? Is seeing the world through a child's eyes important as what Big's trying to tell us? I think so. I think if a film was made in its in its vein nowadays, it would be unfavorably compared to Big, and that would just happen whether it was a good film or not. I think Big is the film because of the fact that Tom Hanks became such a massive star. Had his career ended briefly after that for whatever reason I don't think we remember the film as much as we do now but because Tom Hanks did go on to be you know everyone's best mate and everyone loves Tom Hanks don't they we remember that film and any film that comes out similar to it but you know 17 again Zaka from one that we mentioned before Freaky Friday 13 going on 30 all these films straight away the first film that comes to mind is big even though it's not the exact same idea but it does come to mind always. So the legacy of the film for me is, I don't think any other film could top it in that particular genre. It's a very specific genre, but I don't think they could make films like that anymore anyway, really, not even now. Um, it's, the measure, it's the measuring stick, isn't it? It is, it's definitely the, the, the measure, the, the, the point at which all of the films are nine times out of 10 looking up to rather than looking down at. Uh, the other... The other thing is as well, JD, um, much like the buddy cop films, and you said as well, they're of their time. They're not going to be around those type of films. What do you think, JD? Well, it, it saddens me that they're not, these kind of films aren't around because we know how much, I mean, we, here we are 30 years later still talking about them. Uh, we, we decided to do this podcast because we love those kind of films. And um, although they're of the time, some of the messages still remain. And I find that with a lot of 80s films, it's looking at the world through the eyes of a child. You see it in something like E.T. And, you know, 
you you touched upon it earlier in the episode. Watching Big as a child was brilliant. Watching it as an adult, it was brilliant. And it was also absolutely heartwarming. You could see it was just a completely different presentation. It was seeing things that you weren't aware of when you were eight years old. And the story's fantastic, but I'll just say a quick word on Tom Hanks. And I said that I think it's his best role. He's so good in this film. I really can't overstate that enough. The more you watch it, the more you appreciate just the small nuances and his facial expressions. He's just absolutely perfect. And part of me thinks, is Big so good because Tom Hanks is so good in it? And I think the answer to that's no. I have to say the story, um, and you know, we'll even touch upon the, the, the director. It was such a well-made film. It just happened to have an absolutely fantastic Tom Hanks in it. I agree. I want to use this uh, opportunity, J Dog, and some people think it's a controversial point, and obviously, it's it's not something that people don't discuss a lot. But Josh ends up sleeping, doesn't he, with this? Or does he end up sleeping with this character? Well. If he doesn't, it's heavily implied. They have a couple of dates. And then, uh, you know, there's that joke, isn't there, where they go back to his and he says, I'm getting on top. And she's a bit taken aback by that, but obviously he meant to bunk beds. But then later on, after they've been together for a, a bit, then they do go to bed. And the next morning, he's got a very big spring in his step. Right. So how, do we, how, how are we supposed to feel about that? Because obviously... It's something that I don't think would go down well today, somehow. No, it wouldn't. Uh, as an audience, we're aware of the film. And, of course, we know what it's about. The characters don't. So there's an argument there that the characters don't... The, the female character doesn't know what's going on. The, the boy does. In the 80s, that sort of thing would have been not okay, but... You know, our last episode was Weird Science. The two main characters in the first scene are just staring at girls. You can look back at things from the past and judge them by the standards of today. But if you do that for everything, you tie yourself up in knots. I think when you do watch it, though, it is slightly creepy. And there is a bit of a redemptive scene where at the very end, when, because don't forget, Elizabeth Perkins does find out that he is a, a boy, really, after all of this. And she's sort of looking at him in scenes like, oh, yeah, and... She asks for some gum at the, at the shop and he buys her the, the one that the kid, kid would usually go for. But in the very last scene, before she drops him back off home, he goes to kiss her like a partner would and she stops and she kisses him on the head like, like a mother would. Maybe that only serves to complicate things further. No, but, you know, it, it just ratifies that we don't hold anything against because she's ignorant to the fact. She's ignorant to the fact, you know, plus also all roads lead back to Back to the Future, don't they? Look at what happens in that film. The, the mother doesn't know. She falls in love with her own son. And we got really experimental in the 80s, didn't we? I mean, Howard the Duck uh, ends up in bed with Leah Thompson. And uh, oh, yeah. as you said, Kelvin Klein and his mum. <laughs> the, the 80s presented the whole range of these wacko love things. Was, so, was it a case of people would just more... more willing to accept that this is a work of fiction and not naive, but certainly less clouded by all of these moral considerations. And like I say, tying up in knots, thinking about things that people just go to the cinema and enjoy the film and not think about that stuff. I don't know. I would say yes. I mean, when I watch the film, I've, I've never 
finished the, the, the movie and, and at the end of it said, that was great. I just wish he wouldn't have slept with the, the, you know, the woman. It, it, it didn't feel like that to me at all. It, it was kind of, look at the circumstances that they're both in. Uh, you know, and it, it's interesting because, of course, when you're writing a script about a young boy who all of a sudden is in a man's body and is then associating with an older woman, it, these things could happen. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was brave of the script to go with it. And I'm glad that obviously they explored it. It's a fantasy. And it's got fantastical elements. That's it. No more needs to be said. Well, anything else to add? Are we going to give this a mark out of 10, J-Dog? I think so. Go on. I always let you do the ranking. I'm, I'm kind like that. Because it's been a few weeks. Let's remind ourselves. Back to the Future, we give a 10. Episode 2 was our... Do you remember what we did for episode 2? Was it Bill and Ted? Ted. Eight. I think no, I think I think you give it an eight. Robocop you gave a nine. And yeah. Weird Science, I think you gave Weird Science a nine. Okay. So with that being said, J Dog, big nineteen eighty-eight out of ten. In the body swap genre, it gets a ten out of ten. But in the overall genre, I'm going to give it an eight. There you have it. It's so why don't we say in light of you saying that, I'm gonna give it a nine. You've given me an eight and a 10, so I'm going to go somewhere down the middle. I'd be very tempted to give it a 10 because I do think very highly of it. But you, you and me will probably give most films eight, nines and tens. Spoiler alert. And can I just say for anyone that hadn't seen Schindler's List, you know, that was another spoiler that J-Dog unfortunately gave away. <laughs> thanks for that, J-Dog. <laughs> Without any further uh, words to be said, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us on this episode of Sick of Time. And we will see you all next time. Thank you. See you next time, nerds.